1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. You know, while you're turning there, I'll simply mention that uh, from this perspective up here, uh, many of you are highly predictable in terms of where you sit. Uh, but during first service, the Stranskys, who always sit right there in that section, right about where Wally and Doris are, I mean, as sure as the sun comes up and uh, the seasons change and uh, the Stranskys will be right there, they were sitting right there this morning. But now in second service, whom I usually see in third seated there, the Harris are seated right there. And it makes me wonder if the earth is just a little bit off its axis today. It's just from this perspective up here, a little insight. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 13. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is, what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And what that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Thus far, God's word. Abraham Lincoln gave three especially memorable speeches. One of those speeches was his second inaugural address, which was delivered six weeks to the day before he died. And it's best known for the opening words of the final paragraph, with malice toward none. Another one of those speeches, the Gettysburg Address, was delivered about three months before that on a uh, Civil War battlefield in Pennsylvania, uh, uh, spoken from notes on the back of an envelope. And it's best known for the opening words of the first paragraph, four score and seven years ago. 
The other one of those memorable addresses is Lincoln's House Divided speech, which was delivered before he was president upon his acceptance of the Republican Party's nomination to become the next U.S. Senator from Illinois, an election that he lost to Stephen Douglas. But in that speech, uh, the best-known line is, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Now, that line, in source after source after source, is attributed to Abraham Lincoln. But in fact, it was first spoken in Matthew chapter 12 by Jesus Christ. Because you see, in God's economy, division leads to disaster. Uh, We saw this last winter in the book of Philippians where Paul exhorted his readers to remain in one spirit with one mind having the same love. And then he individually exhorted uh, Euodia and then Syntyche to end their division and agree in the Lord. Well, we're seeing this tendency to division again in 1 Corinthians where uh, beginning in verse 10, and this is kind of a a dot to dot from passage to passage that will bring us up to this morning. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 10, where Paul wrote, I appeal to you, brothers, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you. And then in verse 11, we see that these divisions were expressed by quarreling. And then in verse 12, we see that the quarreling was over a variety of preferred Christian leaders. So there in verse 12, Paul writes, each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. Which is why at the outset of chapter 3, Paul went on to write that he could not address the Corinthians as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants of Christ, uh, infants in Christ. And then down in verse 4, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human, fangirling, if you will? And so Paul concludes chapter 3 with these words, let no one boast in men, which is exactly what the Corinthians were doing. Now, Rob Lister pointed out last week, and rightly so, that boasting uh, was not what we think of as bragging. Rather, it was uh, relying on or, or resting in or trusting these men to bear the weight of their souls before trusting in Christ. So again, Paul Paul writes, let no one boast in men, for really all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, you're Christ's, and Christ is God's. And that's why he'd already written at the very end of chapter 1, let the one who boasts then boast in the Lord. That, That is, let him bear the weight of your soul. I think Rob, again, said it well last week when he asked, well, why should the Corinthians have lived attaching themselves to this favorite speaker or that favorite speaker instead of God? 
Who, who is the one who supplies the growth and the grace through these different servants? He went on to say, live in the light of who you are in Christ, which unites, and not who they are, which divides. Well, what the Corinthians did back then, we are still prone to do now. And I have uh, witnessed it uh, in multiple times and in multiple ways. On the small scale, I've seen it uh, over coffee with young adults who, though they believe in Christ, debate about the matters of Christ, never referring to the word of Christ, which is the Bible, but instead their preferred Bible scholars. And conversations like that, over time, can tend to divide. Uh, I've witnessed it on the big scale uh, multiple times in the church. For example, at a church in L.A. County where the congregation had grown to include thousands and thousands of people. Uh, The pastor there was popular. Uh, He was tall and handsome. He still is tall and handsome. He's, He's still alive. Um, uh, he was powerful. He had a remarkable degree of gravitas. His, his presence just seemed to pull a person right into the pulpit with him. And he was persuasive. Uh, he could have elicited the accolades that were directed at King Herod in Acts chapter 12. The voice of a God and not a man. He was in no way like the Apostle Paul, who was described as A man of middling size, his hair was scanty, his legs were a little crooked, and his knees were far apart. He had large eyes, his eyebrows met, and his nose was somewhat long. Well, one day, that uh, popular and powerful and persuasive preacher decided that, or rather announced, that he was going to leave his, um, I guess it would be L.A. County Church for one in Orange County. And when he did, it profoundly divided the congregation. In fact, as I recall, thousands followed him from this church to that one, leaving only 500 behind. Now, you may think that that kind of division could never happen here. I pray that it never does. But among God's people, the tendency to divide over leaders, especially the beautiful and the strong and the well-spoken, is long and storied. Uh, Consider Israel, who in shifting from the leadership of Samuel to Saul, was drawn in part to a leader who was more handsome. And then in shifting from the leadership of Saul to David, was drawn to a leader that was more popular. And then in shifting in the leadership uh, from David to Absalom was drawn to a leader who was more persuasive. So uh, we see it here again in 1 Corinthians. It's a part of our heritage. And so the question we want to ask this morning is simply, what are we to look for in a Christian leader? What are we to look for in a Christian leader? Paul uh, teases that out here in these verses as far as it concerns an apostle. 
And the, the principles naturally and easily transfer into Christian leadership today. So, so here's an overview of what's ahead. A Christian leader is a servant and a steward. It's a servant and a steward who is found faithful, is rightly judged, is a spectacle to others, and is a fool for Christ. A servant and a steward, found faithful, rightly judged, spectacle to others, fool for Christ. Knowing what to look for in a Christian leader helps a church to promote unity and prevent division, or as Paul put it in verse six, not to become puffed up in favor of one against another. So that's the way forward uh, this morning. We begin in verse one, uh, where we see that a Christian leader is a servant and a steward. Read with me there. Um, is this, uh, this is how one should regard us. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now again, uh, we've said this, seems like every week. I'm going to say it again. A Christian leader should not be primarily known for his superior education, uh, winsome personality, oratorical, uh, rhetorical abilities, all, all of which may be helpful, but are a distant second to uh, how he should really be regarded, which is as first a servant. That's how he or she ought to be primarily known. Christian leaders should be known as a servant. Now, in the Bible, that word servant is most often translated deacon. But here and only here in Scripture, uh, the word for servant is the one that describes a galley slave in an ancient ship. Uh, a rower who was relegated to the lowest deck, hot, sweaty, uh, fatiguing, tired, a rower who had to work with and not against his fellow rowers, sharing equal status, all pulling together. That is an image of Christian leadership. See, Christian leaders don't give orders. They're not the captain of the ship. Rather, Christian leaders have received orders. They are working under orders that have been delivered in Scripture and as such are not free to innovate uh, nor allowed to exercise a creative license in their ministries. Now I know it says this, but I like to do it this way. Which is why Christian leadership can be so terribly challenging. Especially if you're predisposed to being the leader instead of just one of the leaders. If you're predisposed to uh, uh, build some kind of professional organization rather than nurture the family of God. Especially if you're predisposed to see results today and not on the last day. Further, notice that a Christian leader is to be regarded as a steward and that of the mysteries of God. Now, a steward is one who owns nothing but is responsible for everything. Um, uh, it's especially clear to us in Genesis chapter 39 
Uh, Joseph was a steward in the house of the Egyptian captain Potiphar. Didn't own Potiphar's house, but he was responsible for all that was in and around it. If you're over 50 years old, you no doubt remember the days when flight attendants were referred to as stewards and stewardesses. Weren't many stewards back then, but there were plenty of stewardesses. Uh, Stewardesses neither owned the plane nor did they fly the plane, but they were responsible for everything in the plane, the information, the safety, the food, the lights, the air, the passengers. Uh, a, a, a stewardess, I was thinking about this this morning, like our own Kim Wyrick, is really a great example of a Christian leader in this way. Kim will lead you, as it were, from, say, Los Angeles to Sydney. She'll lead you there, but she'll serve you all along the way. It's a great image. So Christian leaders are stewards and specifically of the mysteries of God. What are the mysteries of God? Well, some understand the mysteries of God to be those things about the Lord which are hidden and inscrutable. And in some senses, I guess that's true. But when you look at Scripture, the mysteries of God are those things, by and large, which were hidden in in the Old Testament, anticipated in the Old Testament, and are now revealed, uh, realized in the person of Christ. That is to say, the mysteries of God are part and parcel the gospel. And while these mysteries did not originate with the Christian leader, it is his or her responsibility, as well as that of every Christian, to be a good steward of them. 1 Peter chapter 4.10 informs us that each has received a gift which we learn in Ephesians is a byproduct of the gospel. Each has received a gift to uh, use in service to one another as good stewards of God's grace. So Christian leaders are not uh, masters and commanders. They're not Russell Crowe. They're rather servants and stewards of God's good news. And yet there are lazy servants, and there are careless stewards. And that's why verse number two goes on to read, Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful or or trustworthy. So a Christian leader is not just a steward of the gospel, but a faithful steward of the gospel. He's one who who regularly and tirelessly guards the integrity of, of the gospel, uh, explains the meaning of the gospel, administers the benefits of the gospel, and does so, as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children and a loving father exhorting and encouraging the same. Further, Paul points out that in these things, a Christian uh, leader is a faithful steward who is rightly judged, and Paul spills quite a bit of ink on this between verses 2 and 8. So, so notice here in verse number 3 that of the Corinthians, Paul wrote, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. And then of himself, he adds, I don't even judge myself. 
But in verse number four, Paul asserted that it is the Lord who judges me. Now, what does Paul mean by that? Well, let me tell you what he doesn't mean. Paul doesn't mean that a Christian uh, leader should never be evaluated or judged. I mean, he emphatically evaluated Peter's ministry at Antioch. We read about that in Galatians 2. And he clearly judged certain teachers at Corinth to be false. We see that in 2 Corinthians 11. Further, he does not mean that no Christian should uh, ever be judged uh, since he expressly instructed the Corinthians to judge those inside the church. We'll see that uh, uh, later in chapter 5. And he firmly rebuked them for failing to do so in chapter 6. Moreover, Paul doesn't mean that he should never be evaluated. So again, what what is he talking about here? Well, Paul is not so much concerned that the Corinthians were judging him, but that they had made a final judgment about him, an absolute judgment about him, which is a prerogative that belongs only to the Lord. It's it's as if the Corinthians had tried Paul in the court of, of congregational opinion found him as a man and a minister to be unworthy of their support for entirely superficial reasons, and then judged him, dropped the gavel, written him entirely off. Well, Paul responds to all this in verses 5 and 6, where he states that the Corinthians had judged him and other servants of God as well at the wrong time. Take a look there in verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce this absolute judgment before the time, what time is he talking about? Before the Lord comes, who will then bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will then disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. This morning I happened to pick up my mom's old living uh, New Testament Some of you will recognize the the green and orange cover from yay many years ago, but I I opened up uh, uh, the Living New Testament to read how Ken Taylor had rendered 1 Corinthians 4 or 5. I like this. I think it's helpful. So be careful not to jump to conclusions before the Lord returns as to whether someone is a good servant or not. When the Lord comes, he will turn on the light so that everyone can see exactly what each one of us is really like deep down in our hearts. Then everyone will know why we have been doing the Lord's work. At that that time, God will give to each one whatever praise is coming to him. So to make a final pronouncement about a man, woman, a ministry is only God's prerogative. It's not yours. It's to be done on the last day, not this one, since to do otherwise is to play God. The Corinthians did this. The the reason they felt the the freedom to do this is because of their overblown view of the future. See, they thought that the future was now. They they thought that heaven had, had come to earth and that Paul's humble profile was not really in keeping with that uh, elevated atmosphere. 
Now to be sure, Paul had referred to them in chapter 10 verse 11 as the ones on whom the end of the age had come. But while God's kingdom had been inaugurated at the first coming of Christ, it will not be consummated until the second coming of Christ, at which point the Lord will mete out final judgments. Paul continued by stating that not only had he been judged at the wrong time, but the Corinthians had judged him by the wrong standard. They judged him according to their personal preferences and prejudices. So Paul reminds them that in judging one another, and we see this at the beginning of verse 6, not to go beyond what is written. Since that's the only safe and objective standard by which to judge any uh, man or ministry. Not only was Paul being judged at the wrong time and by the wrong standard, but the Corinthians had judged him according to the wrong motive. Paul was being torn down so the Corinthians could build themselves up. See that at the end of verse number six, indicating that their motive was entirely of the flesh, not of the spirit, which as Paul points out in chapter three, verse one, was their main problem that led to these divisions. So Paul had been wrongly judged by the Corinthians, but he would not be the last to suffer that kind of treatment. When I was an undergraduate, um, I heard J.I. Packer memorably conclude a talk to a group of uh, ministerial students by, by saying this. He said, always remember Jonathan Edwards. He led his people through revivals in 1734 and 1740, and in 1750, they kicked him out of his church. And as one Edwards scholar later wrote, this even after 23 years of spectacularly faithful and fruitful ministry. Fascinating. Charles Spurgeon, uh, the great Baptist preacher of the 19th century, was uh, described like this. The Baptist Union had a papacy. Spurgeon would have been the unquestioned pope. Spurgeon faithfully pastored the Metropolitan Tabernacle for almost 40 years. Uh, When he began in his very early 20s, he was already back then preaching to thousands and thousands and thousands of people. But toward the end of his life, during an attempt to keep his denomination from deserting the gospel, Spurgeon was abandoned. This is uh, uh, little known or at least overlooked by by most. He, He was entirely abandoned by his own people. It's written, his erstwhile brethren brutalized him. They charged him with pugilism and being a schismatic. They even questioned his sanity with a whisper campaign that his physical maladies had made him mad. Graduates of Spurgeon's College, which was this little ministerial college he he had there at his church, graduates of that college turned on him. And the leaders of the Baptist Union pilloried him. It's remarkable. There are no greater joys than one experiences in Christian leadership. But there are no greater heartaches either. And Paul understood that. 
So the apostle took his uh, apostolic privilege to put the Corinthians in their place, to uh, address their puffed up, divisive profile. And so in, in verse number seven, we see that he popped their puffiness by asking, uh, what, what do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, what, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Uh, John the Baptist made the same point uh, to Nicodemus uh, in John chapter 3. That would be Jesus, I think, who made that uh, point in uh, John chapter 3. Uh, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And, uh, well, no, this is, this is John the Baptist, sorry. Boy, I got that part of my notes all wrong. What was I thinking? John the Baptist said, so he must increase so that I might decrease. Paul then went on to challenge this um, heaven on earth, uh, your best life now, um, have your cake and eat it too mentality by employing uh, some sanctified sarcasm in verse number eight. So we read there, uh, so already you have all you want. Already you become rich. Without us you become kings and would that you did, meaning then that the last day had come so that we might share the rule with you and thereby the making of all things right. So a Christian leader is to be judged rightly, not according to man's opinion, but God's opinion. Not today, but on the last day. Until then... A Christian leader is a, is a servant and a steward who is a spectacle to the world. Take a look there in verse number 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. Now there are two images here in this passage that are especially noteworthy. Uh, first, Paul describes himself, as well as his fellow apostles, uh, as last of all being exhibited like men sentenced to death. And the picture here is that of a conquering army in a victory parade. So right up front, you have marching in the triumphant troops. Then you have uh, the spoils of war following them. And then Last of all, you have the uh, uh, captives who are condemned to die. Paul considers himself among uh, their company. Second noteworthy image in this phrase is a spectacle to the world. Um, the word spectacle is the one from which we get the uh, term theater, but the refined theater of the Greeks had given way to the brutality of the Romans. Uh, the gladiatorial theater, where uh, men were pitted against men, women sometimes against women, and they fought uh, often to the death. What I find sobering and compelling about these images is that they're not only brutal, but they are painfully public. Christian leaders are on display. They're on display before the world. And not just the globe on which we live, but, but before the cosmos, uh, a creation order. 
Meaning, as we see there at the end of verse 9, what Christian leaders do is not only done before men, but before angels as well. So the work of the gospel is massive in scale, it's great in importance, and it's eternal in its scope. As a former colleague of mine once said, it's not really so much what he said, but it's just the way he said it. It counts for something. I'll always remember the night he said that. I may have mentioned this um, on a previous Sunday, but we had just come out of a congregational meeting. It was a battle royale. And uh, some of us uh, retired afterwards to the home of a, a colleague, and we flopped down in these overstuffed chairs, and we were all breathing heavy, except this one uh, colleague of mine. And he was shifting in his chair. And I said, what's with you? And he said, I love it. I asked, what do you love? He said, I love it because it counts for something. And that's why for such a thing, Paul was willing to be known in verse 10 as a fool for Christ's sake. Christian leader is a servant and a steward who is a fool for Christ. Once Paul, like the Corinthians, gloried in his strength, but then he met Christ and realized that his assets were actually his liabilities. And his weakness was actually his strength. Paul's growing realization of this fact marked a trajectory in his life that can be seen in the development of his letters. In terms of how he referred to himself from his earliest known letters to his last. Let me give you an example. So in Galatians, Paul refers to himself as an apostle. But in 2 Corinthians, he called himself the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. In Romans, Paul identified himself as a servant of Christ. But in Ephesians, the very least of the saints. And in 1 Timothy, the foremost of sinners. This is what Charles Simeon was talking about when he said, to soar heavenward, we must grow downwards in humility. And this is why Paul could write to the Corinthians, uh, you're wise, but my fellow apostles and I, we're fools. Verse number 10. You're strong, we're weak. You're held in honor, we're held in disrepute. Verse 11. At present, we're hungry and thirsty and buffeted and homeless and poorly dressed. We're laboring with our own hands, which was looked down upon by the elite in society, where the scum of the world, which was rubbish, scooped up into a dustpan, we are the refuse of all things, the filth scraped up off the floor at the end of the night. Paul encouraged this cross-shaped life. He was an example of this cross-shaped life, since it was in keeping with the life of Christ who had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He, he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Isaiah 53, 2 and 3. But that's just the half of it. 
Because the other side of the cross-shaped life is seen in the, in the second part of verse 12 where Paul wrote, when reviled, we bless. <laughs> when persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. All of which was possible as Paul focused less on himself, more on Christ and the hope of the last day. Just a week or so ago, this was powerfully illustrated. I think most of you probably saw it when Brant Jean or Brant John forgave his brother's killer. He even embraced her and then exhorted her to give her life to Christ. Now, you may never have the opportunity, and I hope you don't, to express forgiveness for that kind of a thing. But you uh, may, toward a distant parent or a delinquent child or a difficult spouse, which, which makes me think of a, a radio program I was listening to. It was being hosted by uh, Elizabeth Elliot. She was taking phone calls, and a distraught wife called in and talked about her difficult husband. And uh, Elizabeth Elliot was very patient, and uh, when this woman was done, uh, there was a silence. And then uh, uh, Elliot asked, um, what does the Bible say? Love your enemies. which is something that can only be done when one assumes the posture of a fool, a fool for Christ. Churches that place a premium on leaders who are servants and stewards, found faithful, rightly judged, spectacles before all creation, fools for Christ, are churches that don't pull apart, but rather come together since their hope is in Christ and not in their leaders. Their churches with their eyes, not on today and all that's happening around us, but on the last day. An exercise that keeps everything in balance even when everything's falling apart. I remember uh, hearing a talk given by a fellow named Wynne Quarterwin. He's actually a preeminent uh, Christian philosopher. And uh, Wynne ended his talk by accentuating the importance of keeping one's eyes on Christ and the last day. And he did that uh, by picking up a broom. And he took that broom and he put it, put the handle right there in his hand and he said, um, you know, it's impossible for me to balance this broom if I look at the handle <laughs> where it meets my hand, it will always fall off. But he said, if I look up at the top of the broom and take my eyes off my hand, he said, I can keep the broom right there. And that's the way it is with us. 
Things can be shaky down here, but as our eyes are on Christ, as we focus on the last day, we can say with Paul, from the deepest part of our being, we don't lose heart. That though our outer self is wasting away as spectacles and fools, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is actually preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen, they are eternal. So, Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us to put our hope in you. To long for the last day. It's a day we can't see, but we can keep our eyes on the horizon. And Lord, may we be servants and stewards of your good news now and in the days to come. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.